Welcome to The Healthy Advisor, a podcast from wealthmanagement.com focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. I'm Diana Britton, Managing Editor of wealthmanagement.com, and in this podcast, we explore some of the struggles and personal development issues facing advisors and financial services professionals, and how to get to a place of healing for mind, body, and spirit. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Healthy Advisor podcast, and thanks for joining us today. As you may know, this is the podcast focus on financial advisor health and wellness, and today's guest definitely scores on that count. His name is Tyrone Ross Jr. He is the CEO and co-founder of Turnkey Labs and president and founder of 401 Financial, a registered investment advisor. He's also the former CEO of OnRamp Invest and is uh, just a huge thought leader in the crypto asset space. Tyrone, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to this. Should be fun. Yeah. And, you know, Tyrone's just a friend of wealthmanagement.com. It's great to to have you on. Um, You know, he's well known in the industry, a frequent speaker at industry events. He has an active social media presence and a a big following there. But, you know, I think I think the journey that Tyrone has been on to get where he is today has not been easy. He was raised in New Jersey in a family where no one had had uh, a, a high school diploma As a 16-year-old, he watched sprinter Michael Johnson set records at the 1996 Olympic Games and dreamed of winning his own gold medal, Um, trained over the years, and eventually qualified for the 2004 team in the 400-meter dash, only to be left off the roster when coaches decided to trim the athletes competing in Athens. He tried again in 2008 and 2012. Uh, didn't make it to the Olympic Games, and you know we're we're going to get to that. But I mean, I think we have a lot to learn here from Tyrone about bouncing back from failures, unrealized dreams. But Tyrone, first, I wanted you to talk a little bit about your childhood, and uh, you know, I know you said um, you didn't come from money. Um, you know, not sort of uh, way a lot of advisors get into the industry. But I think you grew up in the projects of New Jersey. Mm-hmm. What was your well, childhood like? So yeah, there. My mom was raised um, in in the projects in New Jersey, um, Potter's Crossing. I unfortunately didn't really have a solidified home when I was growing up. We moved a lot. I would have loved to have called one place home, but unfortunately, based on f- some financial struggles, we moved around a lot. So my memories of of my childhood are are mixed, right? And and one the main constant is love. My parents had always provided the support that my sister and I needed. And for some background, my mother had my sister at 17. My dad came to this country from Guyana, South America, met my mother. Um, and they've been together ever since, actually, which is in, which is incredible. They've been married 40-something years. It's, it's nuts. And, and as you mentioned, I was the first in my family to finish high school. And my sister had my niece fairly young, who works at 401 in Turnkey now, which is um, part of the, the the legacy that I hope to create when I got into this industry. But so we moved a lot. There were some a lot some financial hardships that really started to frame my mind around money and the and the term or the word enough. Um, enough wasn't a positive thing; it was a negative thing because we 
rarely had enough, but it was, I was lucky enough to have so many people that were instrumental in my life. One was a woman named um, Ruth Mohern, who um, I talk about often, and she's the reason why I, I advocate for No Kid Hungry so much, because when I was in elementary school and I didn't have lunch money one day or various days, she would take care of me. And mm. I, you know, I learned to swim in her pool and I learned to do all these other things because she helped my parents out to kind of help me. So it was it was sporadic. Again, my sister was in and out of the house. We moved a lot. It was very fragmented. So piecing my childhood together takes a lot of, oh, I remember here and living here and doing this, but definitely surrounded by love. But it was all about survival at that point. My parents were young parents, obviously, and just watching them try and keep the lights on, keep a roof over our head, keep us fed. Um, and ultimately, they made some decisions that were incredible financial planning decisions, if you will, because it got me here talking to you. Yeah. Um, how did your dream about how did your dream of, of being in the Olympics come about and tell us about how that played out? So. My parents, right, my, the high school that I went to, the only reason I went to that high school is because we borrowed my aunt's address. Again, that's her legacy. She just, she just passed away from cancer. My dad's mm -hmm. sister, who actually introduced my mom and dad, we borrowed her address because, again, we had, we lived in another town. We had just moved there. I was in the local school there, had got into a little dust up with some kids. And my mother was like, you know, my sister by this time was gone in the streets, and my mother's like, we can't lose him. So mm. they put me in Metuchen High School in Metuchen, New Jersey. And there I had a biology teacher who was also the track coach. And he was like, you should run track. And I was like, no, I shouldn't. I really don't want to run track. I don't know what track is. I don't want to do it. And he's like, well, <laughs> if you don't come out for the track team, I'll fail you. So I'm like, when does track start? <laughs> um, and I went out for the track team and learned a bunch of valuable lessons and ended up becoming one of the best runners in New Jersey state history, thanks to him. And college became a reality. I didn't know what college was until I was, again, 15, 16 years old and started to get recruited. I'm like, college. So I ended up going to Georgia Tech. Had never, I didn't know where Georgia Tech was. I didn't know anything about Georgia Tech, but the coach, the college coach sounded a lot like my high school coach. So I got a full ride to go to Georgia Tech end up getting kicked out of Georgia Tech and coming back to Seton Hall in New Jersey. And after I left Seton Hall, I started to, I was like, all right, this could be something that I can actually live out. And as you mentioned, I was 16 years old when I saw Michael Johnson win the gold in the Olympics. I was a 400 meter runner. So I was just completely enamored with that. But the other part of it is I saw that as an opportunity to change my family's life. Mm -hmm. And when those grow up in the type of situations like I do, you always, they, what is the thing that you feel is going to take the family out of the current situation? And I thought the Olympics was that for me. Mm -hmm. And I had already ruined an incredible opportunity to graduate from Georgia Tech. And when I graduated, I was like, all right, I'm going to put my all into this and see if I can live my dream. Um, and it and it was very much a dream that shattered me, right? As as a grown man, sixteen years later. But two thousand four, as you mentioned, I qualified, and I was like, oh my god, I could, I'm gonna live my dream. 
and I'm on the way to the airport and I'll never forget this. I'm in a car with my mother. I go through the whole thing. We do the whole thing in the communities, leaving, and I'm in a barbershop and everybody's like, good luck. And the whole thing. Mm. And I've, I'll never forget where I was. We were right by the 7-Eleven <laughs> mm. and we get to the light and I get a call and I have a friend who was on the committee. He actually went to Seton Hall. He was on a committee and he said, where are you? And I'm like, what do you mean? I'm about to go to the airport. I'm coming to the trials. Like this is, he goes, don't get on the plane. I'm like, what happened? And he was like, they cut the roster down. They cut the number down from 29. It was 29 names. They cut it to 27 or 28. You and the 28th guy at the same time, they left you both out. Mm. Every other year prior in the Olympics, they took at least 30 or 32. Yeah. Right. To Olympic trials. That was. <laughs> so you so, thought you were in. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Thought it was in. And I lost it. And I told my mother and she turned around and for two weeks, I, I like, I literally didn't come out my room and she was incredibly worried. I was so depressed, but so anyway, that's, that's how that came about. But once I actually got up off the mat, I went back two more times, as you said, and it, it started to shape the course for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, take us to 2012. And I know I've heard you say that it all came crashing down that yep. year and there was sort of a confluence of events in your life. What happened? What uh, happened during your, in your life during that time? 2011 was a bad year. There's a lot of rough mm. things going on, but 2012 was easily the worst year of my life. Something that we'll talk about soon last March was very close in terms of what it did to me in terms of my mind, but mm -hmm. overall, so at this point, I'm 32 years old. This is my last shot. Um, those that are, and for mostly any sport, once you get to your 30s, kind of start to run out of your chances and abilities and everything else. So I knew it was my last shot. And I threw everything at it. At the time, I'm also dating a young lady who was attempting to be Miss America. She was she graduated from Columbia, beautiful, brilliant. She's doing Miss America. I'm training for the Olympics. It was the greatest American love story. It was great. <laughs> and I'm training as hard as ever. I'm fit as I've ever been. I'm spending all of the money that I have to try and make this come true. This is it. Mm -hmm. November of 11, she decides that she wants to go down to D.C. to do um, the pageant in D.C. to qualify for Miss America. She was almost 10 years my junior. So she was early 20s at this point. She's a dreamer. Well, I'm going to tell her, no, you can't go. I'm like, yes, go. Yeah. That kind of started a little bit of stress. Again, I thought this was the love of my life. I was going to marry her. January, at this time now, my, so my family is huge. My mother is one of 12 children. My father's one of 27. Wow. On my mother's side, I'm the youngest of 50 plus first grandchildren, right? So my, my mother's side of the family is huge. December, I find out my grandmother falls ill. Mm. Great. She's in, she's in the hospital. She has um, uterine cancer. So the whole thing starts there. Then I get relieved of my job at Morgan Stanley. <laughs> so all these things, November, then December happens. So 
That happens. My no, no, I'm sorry. I had I had I guess it was not not fired, but I'd started to get in a little bit of issues of not hitting my goals as I was in a training program there and everything else. So I was kind of put on notice. Okay. That comes up later on in the story. So now January, a couple of days before my first meet, my grandmother passes away. Heart. I was in the house. I was there. My mother came upstairs and got me. She was ill and let me know she had passed. My whole family was there. It was a whole thing. Heartbreak. So that happens. My college, I mean, my high school friend, a close friend, passed my driving test in his car, commits suicide. Oh, gosh. I literally spend down all my money now. I have nowhere to stay. Mm-hmm. Now I literally have nowhere to stay. So I'm piecing my things together trying to find. And it was funny. The night I found out he committed suicide, one of my fr- uh, high school friends called me. I'm on my way to go stay with a friend in Brooklyn with all of my stuff in the car. Really depressed myself now. Fast forward a couple months. Again, I run well just because there's in, in, on the East Coast, there's two seasons. There's an indoor season, which is indoors, indoor track and outdoors. Ran incredibly well indoors. We get outdoors. I tear my groin. A mm. couple weeks before the Olympic trials. Can't believe it. I'm completely destroyed. That's in June. In April, the young lady that I thought I was going to marry, we break up. So, again, it's just thing One after thing, thing after, after another. thing after thing. So now I'm living with my parents in a one bedroom apartment, sleeping on the floor on a cot in the same projects my mother grew up in, right around the corner from where my grandmother passed. And my niece, the, those listening to this and know that, again, who works with me now, is my everything. She's like a daughter to me. Amber. And she came in to my parents because the way it worked is I wouldn't be able to even sleep until... My parents decided that they were going to leave the living room, go in their room, and then we would put the cot down on the living room floor and I would lay there. Now, mind you, at this point in my life, I have graduated from college. I go to graduate school. I'm supposed to have this cool Wall Street job. I'm supposed to be the one who made it. And I'm sleeping on the floor, incredibly depressed, torn groin. My dream didn't come true. Love of my life is gone. My friend committed suicide. I lost my job, the whole thing. And my niece comes in and sees me on the floor. Mm-hmm. And that was the last straw. And shortly thereafter, I woke up one morning. And as I explained to people, like, I bought the ticket. I, I woke up and it was maybe it was four something in the morning. I wake up very early and I was going out. At this point, I was just trying to see if I can go out and like jog a little bit. And I'm like. I'm going to die today. Mm. I'm like, I'm, this is it. I have no reason to live anymore. And I started to walk out towards the street. And the more, the closer I got to the street, the more comfortable I got with dying. It was mm. the most, it was, it was the most surreal, scariest, emptiest feeling ever. And for those that are listening to this, if you are at that moment, and for the people that advocate for mental health, like I do, At that moment, you're not calling the 800 number. You're not calling friends. You're not calling anybody. And I've I've dealt with this recently, two weeks ago, or was it last week? Another high school friend of mine, his wife wakes up. He's gone. Two guns in the house are gone. He puts bye on his social media. Oh, God. And he was on his way to Canada. 
I was in here bawling because I've been there. And at that moment, this 18-wheeler is coming down the street. And I'm walking closer to the street. I'm like, this is it. No emotion except for acceptance, which was scary. To this day, to say it, it was very scary. I think it's worth saying here as well, what, what I was depressed about was expectation. Mm. Things that I expected that didn't happen. But I didn't consider what I could do and what was to come. In the future, yeah. Exactly. And it's getting closer, it's getting closer. I step off the curb and God just held me. And I, I just couldn't move. I froze and it went by. <laughs> I have never cried that hard in my life. And I stood there in the street and I let it all out, all out. But it, was, it wasn't only what I knew I was about to do and comfortable doing. Again, my voice is cracking just thinking about it again. It wasn't only my dream coming true. It wasn't only my best friend dying. It wasn't only losing the love of my life. It wasn't only losing my job. It wasn't only losing my grandmother. It wasn't only losing my place and having no money in the bank and being incredibly in debt. It was my childhood. There were so many things that were unresolved. There were so many things that I wanted. Was, the little boy in me cried out. Mm. And I jogged back the rest of the way and I just cried. It cried and cried and cried and cried. Just very cathartic cry. And I had to clean myself up before I went back in the house. It was again, my mother and my father was there. So 2012, the old me had to die. And the new me was born in that moment. And I'm grateful that I didn't go ahead with that because my great nephews, who are my niece's sons, the joy that they bring to my life now and what I've been able to take my failures and build and pour into other people, I get emotional thinking about it because if I would have left that day, all of that would have left inside of me. So what I try to do now, and I know that people are going through that, it just try and get them the expectation of what didn't happen is keeping you where you are. But there is so much more in you that if you just take one more step, live one more day, it'll start to come out. And I know now, ever since then, I've been living on borrowed time. And starting 2013 was just this incredible run in my life. That has been nothing short of spectacular. So um, I'm grateful for that experience, even though it, it broke me uh, to no end. Yeah, I mean, I know I know that you've talked about the fact that those experiences that you've had, you know, growing up and and um, and the Olympic dreams uh, and all that, you know, they really built uh, grit and perseverance in you. And And how do you see those experiences reflected in the work that you're doing today? I realize that there are so many people who, again, I talk about being the voice for the voiceless. There's so many people who don't have a voice. And I've been given a platform and the ability to affect meaningful change. 
and to disrupt in ways that provides access to people who struggle in all ways, financial, mentally, psychologically, physically. I've gone through all of these things and they're still here to speak to these experiences and help people. So I advocate for the homeless. I advocate for single mothers. I advocate for hungry children. I advocate for black and brown folks. I advocate for minorities in the LGBTQIA communities, anyone who is left behind. But I also advocate for people that are religious and believe in practicing and believing in certain things, right? I was raised in a Pentecostal household. If you know anything about Christians, the most conservative Christian in existence, is a Pentecostal Christian. Mm. And my mother is that. She actually still sets a table for Jesus every day. Right? <laughs> like it's Jesus and me and my sister somewhere in there. She's the firstborn, so I'll put her over. But if you were raised awesome. in a Pentecostal household, my mother is, is everything God, right? So, but I advocate for that, but also for humanity. I root for humanity more than anything because I believe independent of someone being Republican, Democrat, black, white, tall, short, skinny, fat, vaxxed, unvaxxed, whatever, at the end of the day, humanity has to win. So I try and be a good example of that. And I try and honor my mother and father who are my heroes because I realize how much they sacrificed for me. So my Olympic dream didn't come true, but I was able to birth so many awesome things as a result. And I'm able to speak and help so many people. And what, because of that, what people think is hard in this industry is not hard to me. What people think is hard in startups is not hard to me. And I realize I'm also privileged because what's hard to me, my parents laugh at, because they're like, are you kidding? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You feed a family off $78, right? And have to pay the rent and everything else. So I realize I'm very privileged and I'm living a, a charm life based on what my parents had to go through. So I just try and use all of that to honor my mother and father, to have a tremendous sense of integrity, to be a leader and to affect meaningful change again for people who walk, 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 talk and act like me. And I'm realized now that I'd only go through those things. God had me go through those things so that I could put more back into the world and I've taken from it. And I just end here, wanting to be an Olympian is a very selfless pursuit. And I had to be comfortable with the fact that that was just never going to happen. And, and that wasn't, I, I was confusing my gifts and talents with my purpose in life. Those mm. things don't often align. I have a gift to run. I had a talent to run. I have a talent to speak. I, I have a gift to motivate. Those are just they come with it, right? God has gave us all something. But my purpose is to shift the world. That's a bigger mission. So I needed to be equipped for that. And I feel like I am now based on all that I've gone through. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about on-ramp. Um, you know, and you mentioned last March, you know, there was a lot of press, uh, you know, including in our publication about your departure from from OnRamp, uh, the cryptocurrency platform for advisors, and and you served as the CEO there for for 19 months. What what happened? What's the real story there? And and what? How did that impact you personally? So I've had some time, right? I haven't spoken about it publicly or said anything, and I still don't think I'll go too much in depth here about what happened. I'll talk about how it affected me personally, 
but I will say being being silent is a response. Mm -hmm. And I'll leave it there. And that was very powerful. But what I've learned, though, because I've been on this journey of self-assessment and personal reflection is. At the end of the day, all experiences that you experience are your fault. And you created them. And sometimes you have to get yourself out of things or whatever. So I take full accountability for what happened. And as I look back at it, there are still things that I'm going to be silent about because silence is my answer. But as I said before, I think it was just old school startup disagreement with founders on direction of the company. I've been saying that and that's what it was. Were there other things there? Yeah, sure. But they are doing well. I've moved on. It's almost a year later. Um, but silence is the best answer there. I will say this, though, because I have the opportunity. It was an incredible experience. I had a ton of fun. I learned a lot. What we did will never be done again. The way that we did it will never be done again. What we were on the cusp of, no one will come close to. And that is something that I'm grateful to Eric that we were able to do. I'm grateful to every single person that was there. I'm grateful to all of our investors. And that's what I will remember. And what hurts most is Eric was my friend mm -hmm. before we endeavored to do that. That was the hurtful part of it. He was my friend. And we haven't, I saw him at Future Proof and it was, you know, we we hugged and I told him I was proud of him and, and it was all good, but we were friends and we don't talk anymore, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm forever grateful for that experience and him, him believing in me and giving me the opportunity. And if he called right now and he needed to sleep on my couch, he could sleep here because I believe in being loyal to people who helped you. But that doesn't mean we need to talk every day or whatever else, but I'm happy for on ramp and, and what has going on there. But I do take full accountability for the role that I played in it, but certain things that were either perpetuated in the media or said or whatever, I, I will continue to have to be silent about. And I do promise people I am going to tell my side of the story at some point, but right now it's just too many other cool things going on and they're doing well. And as the more I reflect on it, I realize that again, it just, the arrows keep pointing at me and, and nothing else. Yeah. I mean, I, I was going to ask if you consider on ramp a failure, but it sounds like that no is the answer. You know, what's funny. There is a gentleman in our industry, Cheryl Penny, who I consider a friend and a mentor. And you may remember after I left on ramp for the next three months, I traveled all around the country and visited very large RIAs for multiple mm -hmm. reasons. And I was sitting with Cheryl with, at dinner and he said, did you consider it a failure? And I'm like, no. I was like, we did this, this and that or whatever. But he was like, you failed. You didn't finish the mission. And that's okay. But you got to acknowledge that. That's mm. You had investors, you had co-founders, you had employees. It failed. It's okay. I don't want to say failure and it says, again, the company still exists. They, they, they're doing well. So in, in that sense, 
the course is not a failure, but failure in terms of what my vision was and what I felt like we were on the cusp of 100%. And I had to reconcile. And if you, anybody out there to know Cheryl, Cheryl, do not put lipstick on a pig. He going to give it to you straight. And it made me think about that. Right. And I've gotten, I had the other side of that conversation with Eric Clark and I had a good conversation with Peter Malouk. And I had a conversation with uh, Jamie Hopkins and Carson and all these folks and everyone had given me different perspectives. So failure in the sense of what I thought we were capable of doing. Yes. And, and how I wish things would have gone different in terms of the dissolution and, and me walking away. Yes. But as far as them still being around and, and knowing what Eric's big brain and what he's capable of, they'll, they'll be fine. Yeah. Um, for, for those listeners who don't know, Cheryl Penny is the CEO of Dynasty Financial Partners, which is a, a platform for RA outsourcing platform. I, and I think, you know, what you're doing right now with Turnkey and 401 Financial is, is really interesting. And, and um, you know, I guess I'm wondering how have all of your experiences how are they kind of shaping the work that you're doing with Turnkey and 401? You know, what's, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. That's so I, well, let me answer the second part of your question because I don't believe it did of how it affected me personally. So March was, if, if 2012 was the hardest year, without March of 2022 was the hardest month of my life. Mm. To have folks you hired on the phone crying to you about what's what happens now i don't have a job and you're dealing with the media calling and doing everything and you trying to reconcile your feelings and what you're going to do next and there were so many things i just got to a all-time low and you may recall in a bunch of like I, I remember putting out a tweet just calling on my network to say hey i got a lot of awesome people and that and listen i don't think there's anybody in our industry that'll disagree. The people that, is, that assembled to build OnRamp were the elite of the elite. Mm -hmm. Premium talent that we were able to attract. And that is had nothing to do with me. That is kudos to them. Elite people like to be around elite people. And we had a who's who. And I want to use this opportunity to say thank you to all of the CEOs and product people and folks who DM me to help. And so many people landed at awesome spots and found their way. I'm internally grateful for that. Our industry is incredible for that. But I was in a situation where, now it's funny, I resigned on the first or the second, like two days late, two, the first, two days later, I'm sitting in Omaha with Carson mm -hmm. and I have a presentation to BlackRock while I'm at Carson. And then I go around the corner and I'm talking to Eric Clark and Ryan and then I'm at Prime Capital. And then, so I'm trying, I, I had to get right back on it and I'm hurting. So in that moment, I had to start to say, all right, I got to draw the lessons from this. I wanted to, before I did anything else, I wanted to make sure that everyone was okay, that folks got placed, that they found jobs, that, that I was able to do. I wanted to make sure everyone was okay before I, I made any moves myself. And I had some ideas in my phone, right? Any serial entrepreneur, you, you doodle, you keep ideas. 
And when I met with Eric Clark and shout to Eric Clark, what a, what a best in class human being, Eric Clark, who's the CEO of Orion. And when I was in Omaha, he DM me, he said, come around the corner and come see me. And I sat there and he was like, I don't even want to talk about it. I, whatever. How are you? Mm. And I'm like, this sucks. And he goes, yep, it's going to suck. Mm. It's like, can't promise you it's going to change. Let me tell you a story. And he pulled out notes of when he, his notes on Orion, right? Like his initial like thought for it and how he got to that moment. And he told me a personal story that I won't share. I don't know if he shared it publicly, but it was heartwarming. And he was like, I'm here for you. Whatever, whatever you need, I will help you do. I want to see you succeed. And again, Eric didn't know me from a can of paint. Yeah. I'd always heard about him. We had wanted to integrate with Orion, but I had never met him. So when he said, come and see me, it was incredible. And he, and he took his time and you could tell he just wasn't doing it for some industry, whatever, but he literally was like, how are you? Here's what you're going to be facing the next couple of months. Here's what I suggest mm -hmm. you do. He walked me out. He waited for me to leave. He asked if I need anything. What an incredible man. Also to that, so many people that reached out. I probably had my assistant schedule almost 45 meetings in March. I spoke to any and everybody. Mm. But anyway, before I left the meeting with Eric, he goes, so what's next? And I read him some notes out of my, I read him some notes out of my phone and he goes, go build that. And it was the idea for turnkey. He goes, go build that. Mm. I'll help you. Whatever you need, go build that. And I was like, okay. And I kind of put that away as something I would do. As far as the RIA is concerned, I had always wanted to launch my own RIA, which is now I could say, which is why I was visiting Carson. But I didn't know if I wanted to be with a strategic partner. Or, I didn't know. I was just trying to figure it out. But I know yeah. I wanted to do it my way. And I respected obviously Ron and, and, and Jamie and everything they're doing there and kind of had some loose conversations with it with Cheryl and spoke to Scott Colangelo and the folks at Prime Capital and was lucky to spend some awesome time with, with Peter Malouk, just getting, again, so many different perspectives on so many different things. And then I decided, I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to just do it myself. I'm just going to launch my own RA and conceived the idea with Eric Smith, my co-founder and partner. He flew out here. He was with me at OnRamp. Um, and shortly after he left OnRamp, he reached out and asked what I was up to. And we just caught up. And I was like, I got this idea. And, you know, he was trying to figure out what he wanted to do next. And we just kind of mapped everything out and we started piecing it together. Mm -hmm. And um, I knew I wanted to build an RAA that was, again, our tagline is representative, equitable, and purposeful. We weren't going to do AUM. We were going to be, you know, a subscription model. We wanted to build it with a wonderful, you know, tech experience that was led by an advisor and not using any traditional tech. And we built this really awesome experience for clients that is very unorthodox. And my niece, she she actually, a lot of folks don't notice, Amber stayed at OnRamp well after I left. Yeah. That's just kudos to the type of young lady that she is and just how skilled yeah. she is. And Eric, when me and Eric did have some conversations shortly after I left, and he was like, would you 
would you mind if she stayed? I said, that's my niece. I love her to death, take care of her, right? But sure. So I just don't think the media and everyone to that point, again, they didn't understand how interwoven that was. My niece was there without me well after I was gone. So when she decided she was going to go, I told her, I'm like, well, you left one job. Now I got two for you. <laughs> so <laughs> she's my chief of staff at Turnkey and she works with, closely with the devs. And then she's our um, chief operations officer uh, for One Financial. Well, I mean, it's just an incredible journey that you've been on, um, Tyrone. And, uh, you know, I, I think we're just about out of time. I, I mean, I feel like I have so many other topics I, I would love to, to chat with you about, but, um, uh, you know, how, how advisors' attention spans only go so far. But um, <laughs> I'd, I'd like to thank you so much, Tyrone, uh, for being on the podcast and, and opening up about your journey. I know, um, you know, it's, it's hard to, to, to dredge up some of these, these things. So thank you so much. No, thank you so much for having me. And I don't want to go without telling you, you are a guiding light in our industry. You are fair. You are you are honest. Um, you, you're credentialed, obviously, but you also do the work. Um, and what I've learned, anything, um, that the media could be cruel in times of stress for a leader, right? And, and um, you and, and everyone there has, has been great to me um, and have given me a, an opportunity to not only speak for the things that I care about, um, but continue to give me a platform um, and a voice in the space. So incredibly grateful to you. Kudos to you for the work you do and being such a high quality individual um, and, and happy to be on and support this. So thank you for having me on. If you'd like to reach out to Tyrone, you may reach him at hello at tyroneross.io. You can email him there or reach out to him on Twitter. If you have a, a struggle and wish to share your experiences and help others in similar situations, please feel free to reach out to me at diana.britton at informa.com. I'd like to thank you for listening to The Healthy Advisor. If you've not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This is Diana Britton reminding you that where there's healing, there is hope. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to The Healthy Advisor, a podcast focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of wealthmanagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of your healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding your particular situation.